You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening. If you're wondering why I was looking around, I thought I left my beverage on stage and I thought wrong, and I'm very sad now. Um, Anyway, nothing? Sorry, that was too weird. I said beverage. I thought my drink was up here. Anyway, whatever. I'm a strange man. Um, So if you're new here, again, I think I'd maybe see a couple people. My name's Dave. I'm the teaching pastor um, here at Revolution Church, and I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, We are continuing our study of 1 John uh, this evening, entitled Simple Truths. And it's titled that, as I've said, week in and week out, because much of what John tells us is stuff that we've heard before, but we always need to be reminded, because... Usually the people of God are slow to learn and very quick to forget, uh, even the most basic things uh, in the scriptures. But this evening we are going to be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And I strongly recommend you use one of those pew Bibles as you saw during the corporate confession. This is not a reliable projector. Uh, so let's see what goes on in 1 John 4, 7 and 8. And tonight we're going to be taking a look at the love of God and what ought to flow from the believer in light of the love of God. Uh, so tonight, we're going to be looking at one of the most famous phrases in the Bible. And that phrase is, God is love. God is love. I remember there was this one Christian rock band I used to like called Justified. Anyone remember them? Yeah, my man, they were, they were like not that big. You know what's up, okay. Uh, but yeah, I remember uh, Sambo, he had God is love tattooed around his belly button, and I remember seeing that on stage, and even when I was a kid, I was like, it's kind of lame, um, whatever, anyway, uh, he had, not that the phrase God is love, but that you would get that, like the rock star tat around your belly button, like that's just a really weird thing to put something about God around your navel, strange, um, it's like having a belly button ring with a cross on the end of it, doesn't make any sense, um, <laughs> this is bombing, or you guys just think I'm just the weirdest human being you've seen today, whatever, um, But again, we're going to be looking at the phrase, God is love. And in light of that phrase, God is love, we are going to have to clear up a lot of misconceptions uh, about that, about what it means. Right? I made myself laugh whenever I was studying for this. Like, we have created so much baggage around the word love and our ideas about God that we have to relearn the most simple phrases <laughs> that we read in the Bible. God is love. There's just so much that we bring into that that we have to basically be untaught and then taught again. Um, but we all know, right? We all know, right? God is love, and we're commanded to love one another. We all know that we do not love one another the way that God has commanded us. Our, our lack of love or our cold love is usually something that we kind of ignore right, and try to focus on something else. I know I'm not the most kind person. I know I don't love people the way I should, but I really, really have doctrine down. Or I'm really good at like acts of service in the church or whatever, but I know that I, I don't have the kind of love and compassion that I should have towards people, so we focus on something else often, and that is really, really unacceptable for us. Um, love for one another, love for your fellow Christian, is to be the distinguishing mark of the disciple of Jesus. So my goal this evening is to highlight the love of God toward us, bring our failure to love one another to the surface, and then show us the remedy for our weak love. So that's my goal. So here's the big idea for the sermon. It's going to be right here. You can read along with me. My thesis statement, if you will. 
The love of God is self-giving and warm in affection towards His people. Since we, the Christian, since we have been born again and experienced that love, we've been given the ability to love like God. Therefore, we should love one another in the way we have been loved by God. That's a summary of this whole sermon. All right, so with that being said, let's get into it. First John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is God's Word to us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you a needy people. Uh, who are cold and do not love the way that we ought to. Please use use Your Word. Holy Spirit, please work alongside the Word that we might be changed. Make us into a people who love. And God, if we have any false converts among us who have no love for their fellow brother, I pray You would bring that to the surface that they might see that they have not been converted and that they need to repent and trust Christ. God, for those of us who do indeed belong to You, increase our love. Help us to be more faithful to you and to live lives that are becoming of one who has believed the gospel. Holy Spirit, please do a sovereign work of grace in our hearts this evening. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so first I want to clear something up. I'm not going to lie, but the first third or so of my sermon is me telling you a lot of what John doesn't mean. Right? This is always fun. And me and Cooley were talking about this. Reformed people are real bad about that. Like, before we'll tell you, like, we, like, we might tell you a little bit about what a passage means, but first we're going to tell you, like, an hour's worth of what it doesn't mean, right? <laughs> That's just something that we kind of do, but whatever. Uh, first, I want to clear something up. You, you probably already know this by now, but I want to make it clear. In verse 7, there's a phrase. Let's read it. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. All right, there's a, there's a part of this passage that you can really mess up real bad. Let me tell you what John does not mean. John does not mean that whoever is a nice person is saved. John does not mean that nice people go to heaven because they are so nice. Right? That's not what he's saying here. Many, many people have taken verse, this verse and verses like this and twisted it to their own destruction into a form of universalism that says everyone's saved, basically. That everyone who shows any love ever is saved, right? Like the guy lets you out in the parking lot, and you're like, he must be born again. Um, that joke made me laugh in my head. Um, but that is not John's intention to teach that if you're nice, that you go to heaven. All right, so hear me on this. If someone could be saved by being nice to other people, by just being a kind, loving person, one, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was completely in vain. If you could be saved by just being a nice dude or giving your money to people or, or just, again, showing general kindness and general compassion towards people that you come into contact with, then why would Jesus come and die? I doubt very seriously our Lord and Savior would be crucified if it was as simple to be saved as you just got to be nice to people. Let alone suffer the very wrath of God Almighty if you could be saved by just being a nice person to people. Right, so again, to believe that all people who show any love towards anyone go to heaven is to, to say that Christ died in vain. 
that his life, death, and resurrection were unnecessary. Right? So that's not what John means. Two, if people were saved by just being a nice person, that would be legalism in its most raw form. What I mean by that is salvation by works. If you could be saved by loving people, then literally it's by your own ability to love, your own ability to keep God's command that we should love one another, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. It's your own obedience then that would save you. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is you cannot do enough right to undo the wrong that you've done towards God. And that salvation comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Christ who is crucified on your behalf and kept the law of God perfectly on your behalf alone. Right? So legalism is not the gospel. You're not saved by what you do. You're not saved by how well you can love people. And third, if you were saved, if John's saying that you're saved by just being a nice person, that would defeat everything else John has said in this letter. Right? If that's the only thing, you just love people, that's it, to be saved. That would defeat everything else John has said. Hear me on this. So again, I just want to repeat this because maybe I just had my phrasing wrong. You are only saved by faith in Christ, period. It's Christ's work, not your own. But John says, not just love is an evidence of being a Christian, but John says that there are three tests to determine whether or not someone is actually saved. To determine whether or not someone's actually a believer and knows God. And the first one is the doctrinal test, right? We went over this a couple of weeks ago. He, again, John makes his rounds. He keeps repeating himself all throughout this letter. The first one is the doctrinal test. That you must first believe rightly about Christ and His gospel. Right? You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, God made flesh, truly God, truly man, who, who, who kept the law on behalf of sinners and was crucified on behalf of sinners and raised from the dead. You have to believe in the biblical Christ. You have to believe the biblical gospel. That's the first test. Second test is the moral test. The one who has been born again and knows God strives to obey God in every area. And when they sin, they confess their sin to God and they repent and they continue to keep following Christ. So there's the moral test, the test of obedience. And then lastly, the test we're in this evening is the love test. The one who knows God, the one who has been saved, the one who's whose home will be heaven, loves their fellow Christian. So all true Christians are to strive for perfection in all three of these areas. All of them. One test is not more important or more essential than the other ones. You can't let one trump the other two. All of these are characteristics of of the legitimate Christian. There must be faith in the biblical Jesus. There must be submission to the gospel. There must be righteous living and repentance. There must be love for the brothers. So again, love is incredibly important. But we don't let let the love test trump the other two. Right? Again, that would undo everything that John said. And being kind won't save you. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Get that formula down in your head. It'll help steer you away from a lot of different errors. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. But verse 7, John starts us off. Beloved. Right? It's this word. He means dear brothers and sisters. Right? That's what that word beloved means here. Dear brothers and sisters. Those loved by God. The beloved. Those loved by God whom I also love. That's how he starts this. It's actually how John starts major discourses throughout this whole letter. 
Right? It's John's thing. Beloved, my dear children, something like that. That's how he starts off almost all of his major discourses in this letter. So this is important what he's getting ready to say. It's as if he's saying, all right, guys, come in close. This is a family meeting. This is incredibly important, so you all need to listen to me very closely. Right? That's how John starts his talk about love. And again, love for your fellow Christian is the context. We're supposed to love everyone else, but there's supposed to be a special love for your fellow Christian. But John starts with this seriousness. Beloved, listen, pay attention. John starts with this seriousness because love is an absolutely indispensable attribute. An indispensable quality of the true Christian. He goes on to say, it is from God. Right? And as such, since all love, all true love finds its root and origin in God, we should prize it highly. Right? It should be something that we revere and respect and be dedicated to showing because it's from God. Well, I think it's interesting, uh, and, I, and I really do appreciate this. Uh, this, was, this was good for me to kind of get a little bit of a, a punch in the face. Um, John goes to talk about love right after discussing the importance of sound doctrine. Seriously. He gets done talking about antichrists and sound doctrine. And if you don't listen to what the apostles teach, you're not saved. Beloved, let us love one another. Like It, it's, it made me chuckle a little bit because he goes from one to the next. So though it is ridiculously important and vital to the individual Christian and to the church that we have sound doctrine, John does not want us to focus solely on doctrine. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not the whole, let's just forget about doctrine and love Jesus. I don't play that game. That's nonsense. right? But doctrine is not the only thing that John wants us to focus on. Right doctrine, correct doctrine, is meant to push us on to other things. Right? So we don't study the Word and preach just to study and preach. Right? Good theology changes us. It is a foreign thought to John that you could truly believe rightly about Christ and His Gospel and not be affected in how you live. That's a completely alien thought to John. So in the words of Shailen, theology leads to doxology. And if it doesn't, it's a cold, dead orthodoxy. Let me explain that one to you. Our right study of God, our right understanding of who God is and what He has done leads us to doxology. Leads us to praise God. Leads us to worship God. And worship manifests itself in how we live, among other things. And if our understanding of God does not lead us to right worship of God, then it is just cold, dead doctrine. And that is, even, no matter how right the doctrine may be, it's cold and dead and it's worthless and that's unacceptable for us to have. Right? So we would do well to keep that in mind. I just wanted to, I, 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 as a, I had to make a pastoral note here, right? Our church, of most churches, needs to hear that regularly because we've got a bunch of doctrine hounds in here, right? Chief of sinners, love studying theology, love studying doctrine. That's not the point. Sound doctrine leads us to other things, right? We don't study just for the sake of studying or to say I'm smarter than you, although it does feel good sometimes, doesn't it? That was a joke. Come on. Anyway, but let's really start now. Now that I've been 15 minutes in, let's actually start the sermon, shall we? The root of these two verses, right? Everything that John says here is rooted in one thing. It's at the bottom. 
God is love. Right? So we're actually going to work our way backward through this. Right? We're going to start in verse 8 and work our way up. God is love is the root and core of this entire passage that we're going to be in for the next few weeks. But what does it mean that God is love? That is a really powerful statement. God is love. But what does it mean? Again, there are a lot of misconceptions surrounding this phrase. Let's clear some of them up. What John does not mean is that God equals love. That is not what John means. Right? In English, sometimes the word is means equals. That's not what John means here. Because right? hear me out. If God is love, as in God equals love, then the reverse would be true. And love would be God. If God is love, then love is God, if that's how John meant it. But love is not God, right? Obviously, love is not God. Which, by the way, I've, I've met uh, the random hippie. Love is God, man. It's like, one, what does that mean? Right? Two, stop smoking dope. Right? Hippies are the bane of my existence. Anyway, what does that mean, love is God? doesn't make any sense. But love is not God. God is a personal, relational being, right, who is involved with His creation, whom we worship. Love is a concept. Right? Love is more, don't get me wrong, it's an action and all those things too, but love is more of a concept. We don't worship a concept. We worship a personal being of God. Right? That's who we worship. We do not worship the concept of love. So that's not what John means. But what John is saying is that love is such a central characteristic of God. It is so essential to who God is that you cannot understand who God is without knowing that first without knowing that God is love, without knowing that love is such a huge part of who God is, you cannot understand who He is without that. God is the embodiment of love. It is an essential characteristic of God. It's as if John is saying, whenever he says God is love, it's God is so closely associated with love, and all that He does is loving. He's so closely associated with it that, as it were, God is love. Now, a common error people make with this phrase, another one, is that they tend to believe that God is, since, okay, God is love, so God is only love. No, that's, that's not true either, right? The, the New Testament alone tells us uh, God is love, God is light, God is spirit, and our God is an all-consuming fire, right? All of those things, so there are four God is statements in the New Testament, and again, that doesn't exhaust all of who God is. But some people look at that. God is love, so He must only be love. False. Right? The Bible teaches us a doctrine that, is, that we call the doctrine of divine simplicity. So you theology nerds, there's your term for the week. But everyone else, you, you guys know what this means. You just have never heard the term before. Divine simplicity is this. Not that God is simple, as in like He's, he's easy to comprehend. But rather, God is not made up of parts... But God is all of His attributes at the same time in their full expression, always. Right? That's what we mean by divine simplicity. He's not made up of parts. He's not part love and part sovereignty and part holy and part wrathful and part omniscient. And No, He's not made up of parts. God is all of who He is all at once in its full expression. That's divine simplicity. He is everything that He is all at once. And it's important for us to see that and know that and hold on to that whenever we read passages like this because we cannot allow one attribute of God to cancel out the others. 
right? Some people will say God is love, so he can't have wrath. Right? He's just love. Again, and if we allow one attribute of God to outweigh any of the others, then congratulations, you have just made an idol. If you say God is only love, you're an idolater. Likewise, if God is only wrath, or God is only holy, or God is only transcendent, congratulations, you are an idolater. God is all of who He is at once, so we have to bear all of His attributes in mind whenever we think about who He is. Okay, again, lest we create an idol. So since God is love, always, always, everything He does is loving. This blew my mind when I was studying this passage. Love is not something that God does occasionally. He doesn't, just, he doesn't do an act of love here or there. All that God does is loving in some way, shape, or form. And I can already hear your objections. What about His wrath? What about His wrath? How is His wrath loving? This is the only objection I'm going to answer, and then I'm actually going to get back to the text. But what about the wrath of God? How is His wrath loving? Well, first let me say His wrath is a loving wrath. Right? And I don't mean like, son, this is, like, is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you kind of a thing, like your parents tell you. I don't mean that kind of a loving wrath. I remember this. This is going to make some of you uncomfortable. God, first and foremost, loves Himself. God is for God. Before anything else, He loves Himself. There is inter-Trinitarian love that existed before anything else. God loves God. God is for God. And this is really good for us. Right? It's not narcissistic, first off, because he's the only being that actually deserves love. Right? We're sinners. We don't deserve anything ever. It's grace that he loves us. God's the only being that actually deserves love, so it's right and good and fitting that a good, holy, just God would love himself. That's one. Two, it's actually the love of God that he has for himself that is the ground of our salvation. Right? Not only because he loves his own glory and he loves his own reputation, but just let me break this down real quick. Let's think of inter-Trinitarian love. Right? Our God is a triune God. The Father loves the Son and chose a people for the Son. And then the Son loves the Father and wants to bring glory to the Father. So he comes to earth to accomplish the plan of the Father to die for and redeem a people that the Father had chosen for him. And then the Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son. So He takes the work of Christ and applies it to the people that the Father has chosen for the Son so that the Father and Son might receive glory because God loves God. It's the ground of our salvation. right? So it's good that God loves God. I just wanted to clear that up. But because God loves Himself, let's get back to His wrath, because God loves Himself and He is holy and just, God therefore loves holiness he loves justice. He loves righteousness and hates evil. So then God, out of love for Himself and His holiness and out of love for justice, pours wrath out on the unrepentant sinner in hell. He does it out of love for Himself. Now, God is not loving toward the object of His wrath, but He is still loving nonetheless. It is still a loving wrath. Okay, so just wanted to clear that up. So in light of that, that would probably be the biggest objection I assume that you had. We can conclude that all God does is loving in some sense. We conclude that certainly God is love. But what does love mean? 
Right? What does love mean? The Greek word used here tells us that this is the love of the will. God is love. What kind of love? The love of the will. It's a self-giving love. Not seeking to acquire anything, but to give. It's a love that is continually giving of itself, or rather the giver of the love, continually giving of self for the benefit of another. Right, this word agape, you've heard of agape love, that's what we're talking about. It was not commonly used in the Greek-speaking world outside of Christianity at this time. It's rare. It's very rare, this kind of self-giving love. And even the pagan Greeks understood that. This is how John, this is the word John chooses to describe God in this passage. And again, it's the root of everything. So in light of that, I thought it would be good for us to consider how God is love. How tangibly, how He has displayed this kind of self-giving love for us. The first is this, first and foremost. I was reading the commentary. This is just a, a pithy statement I liked. God is love is shorthand for the gospel. First right? John 4, 9. We're going to be looking at this next week too. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. First and foremost, that's what it means that God is love. At least in our experience of the love of God. That He loved us and sent His Son into the world that we might live through Him. Please consider this. I know you guys know. You'll know all of these things that I'm getting ready to say. But receive them in your heart. For you, for the church, a sinful, sin-ruined, stained, black-souled, hostile, rebellious people, God gave His Son. People who hated Him. Who lived in constant rebellion. Who were the antithesis of godly. The just gave His life for the unjust. The godly laid down His life for the godless. That we might live through Him. Christ died that we might live. He obeyed the law for us that we might be accepted by His work. It was the perfect spotless Lamb of God who took our sins from us that we might enter the presence of a holy God. Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh and gave Himself for sinners. And we did not deserve it. This is the, lo- the greatest expression of the love of God towards us. Though we were sinners, Christ gave Himself for us. We did not deserve it, but God loved us. The love of God is made manifest in that. Another is the Scriptures. Now, we often don't think of, the, of the, the, the Word of God given to us as an expression of the love of God. But the Word of God is an extension of who God is. You and I would never know God. We would never know God. We would never know His nature. What is He like? What does He hate? What is His will? What, what, what kind of, like His character? We would never know the Gospel. We would never know of His great love for us in Christ. We would know nothing. John Calvin said, we are blind men groping around in the dark until the Scriptures shine light on us. Right? That's us. But God gave us truth. The Word of God, an extension of who God is, gave us truth out of love for us. 
that we might know who He is and enjoy Him and worship Him and bring Him honor and likewise benefit from that relationship. Third, God gave us sanctification. Right? Or rather, He's progressively giving us sanctification. Right? God has poured out His Holy Spirit on every person who has repented and believed the Gospel. And in doing so, He has given us holiness. He has caused us to be a people set apart for His glory, set apart to live godly lives. Via the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we have been given the power to conquer sin. What a great... We don't think about that as, as, as an expression of the love of God toward us. That we don't have to live mired down in sin. That He doesn't just save our souls from, from His wrath. He doesn't just save us from the wrath of God. But He actually saves us from the power of sin. If you don't see that as the love of God, then you don't really understand that sin ruins lives. And I don't just mean that as in, again, first and foremost, it's, you'll go to hell for it. God will punish the unrepentant sinner. But all of the problems that we have in the world, all of the relational problems we have, everything, family strife, all of that junk is because of sin. And God, in His grace, has given us sanctification out of love for us that we might overcome the sin in our lives and be freed from the tyranny of sin and Satan. That's love. Fourth, and this is huge, God gives us continual forgiveness. Oh, this, this, this is huge. Continual forgiveness. Consider this. God gave His Son to die for us knowing that we would continue to sin after we came to faith in the Son. And out of just sheer love for us, God continues to give mercy to the undeserving. Daily forgiveness. You sin every day more than you know that you sin. And yet God says, by the work and merit of my Son, I still accept you, sinner. What great love is this towards us? Another, in daily providence, by His love, God guides us daily and causes all things to work together for our eternal good and our earthly holiness. What great love is that? That He would say, all things by My hand and by My ordination work together for the good of My people. What great love towards us. And then lastly, again, when we, could, we could go on all night. But lastly, common grace. Right, common grace. This is even toward the unbeliever, the person who doesn't know Christ. The Bible says God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Meaning that He shows a measure of love to all men. Now, God does not show salvific or saving love to all men, but He does show a measure of love to all men. He gives us all life. The breath that you just took, the fact that you have children, the families that you have, though I understand not all of them are ideal, the food that you have, the clothing that you wear, the friendships that you can have, all of these things common grace. Life is not always as bad as it could be because God is gracious towards all men. This is the common grace of God. The Bible tells us every good and perfect thing is a gift from God. All things are given to us by the Father out of sheer love for all men. So again, that's not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. As we saying, if we could ink with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, we could not cover it all. Right? The sky didn't have enough to talk about the love of God towards us. But those were some of the actions of God's love towards us. Um, but something, and I, I've not keyed on this enough uh, in my preaching, and I apologize to you all for this. 
God's love also means that God has real affection for you. This is this was good. God has real affection for you, Christian. Zephaniah three seventeen, an obscure book in the Old Testament. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Right? In this, in this, in this passage in Zephaniah chapter 3, this is a scene of God having redeemed his people. Right? God is with his redeemed people, and it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, and God rejoices, and he quiets you, meaning he gives you peace, and he sings over you. This is how God feels towards the people whom he has chosen and redeemed. This is a picture of God actually enjoying and delighting in the people that he has saved. That's wild. The love of God is not just action, but it actually has emotion behind it. Which tells me this, and this is something that I struggle with bad, and I know I'm not the only one. All of God's actions of love are not done begrudgingly or coldly. They're not, God, God doesn't do them cold. He wants to do them. So Christian, if you've turned to Christ in, in faith and you're walking with Him, God loves you. He has real abiding affection for you. Even in the midst of your sin, you are not a nuisance to Him. Anyone else ever feel like that? God may have done all these things for me, but He don't like me. He may give me continual forgiveness, but He has to look at me and think, what trash. Can't He get it together? He annoys me with His constant sin. And I'm not saying that God's pleased with our sin, but hear me. You bring Him joy, Christian. God delights in you. He's your Father. Think of how a father is to love his children. That's how God feels about you. You're His child. This is, again, this is just a, a very simple, kind of funny-sounding statement. God actually likes you. That's nuts. God actually likes His people. He wants, you to, he wants you to be with Him for eternity. That's why He sent His Son to purchase your redemption that you might dwell with Him forever. But hear me on this. It's not because the object of His affection is so likable. It's not because you're lovable. You're a sinner. You sin against Him daily. You break His laws. And that does indeed displease Him. He does have discipline for the ones whom He loves. Whenever we live in an unrepentant, sinful way, God doesn't love you because you're lovable. He doesn't like you because you're likable. He doesn't rejoice over you because you in and of yourself are inherently such a joy to Him. But He has this disposition towards you because He loves you. Why would God love us? Because He does. Ephesians 1 says this is just His good pleasure to love us this way. We should, this should make us so excited. God actually loves me. Not just in cold action of love, but He actually does it because He has warm affection for me. It was encouraging for me to, read, to study about this week. But in light of God's love, let's now work back through the text. I think we're going to see John's argument here, and I spent a lot of time in that because that's the root of everything. 
verse 8a, the first bit, says, Anyone who does not love does not know God. So anyone who doesn't reflect this same kind of love that God shows doesn't know God themselves. That's a weighty statement. You don't know God if you don't love. And to know here doesn't mean mere intellectual knowledge. Rather, John means to know God experientially. To know Him by experience. Right? To have come in contact with the love of God in Christ Jesus. Right? To be an active recipient of God's saving love and continued graces through Christ be an active recipient of that love. John says, it is impossible to know the God who is love in this kind of experiential way and not love, one, and not love others as a result. And not love one another as a result. It's impossible. So please hear me on this. Again, I need to hear this more than anyone. You may know all that there is to know, humanly speaking, about God. You may have a PhD in systematic theology and not know Him. I'm convinced hell is going to be filled with scholars who knew the Scriptures. Who did not actually know God. The Pharisees knew the Word. The Pharisees had actually Jesus' theology lined up with the Pharisees, excluding their man-made laws. They did not know Him. God says, my name is on your lips and your heart's far from me. So the question of the hour is, do you love your fellow Christians? Do you love your fellow Christians? Because if you do not have love, then you are not a Christian yourself. Again, I understand this is strong. And again, I'm not trying to take away the the weight and sting of what John has said, but I want to remind you, in light of everything else we've studied in this series, John in these tests lays out the ideal Okay? John is not saying that if you don't love like God perfectly 100% of the time, then you're not saved. That is not what John's saying here. But one thing John makes plain is that the Christian strives for and desires to love like this. This self-giving love that God has that just doesn't quit. The Christian desires and strives for that. So the question is, do you ever manifest this kind of love? Do you ever do it? Do you ever manifest this kind of affection? Do you have a desire to manifest this kind of affection and love towards your fellow Christian? If not, then you're not a Christian. I implore you to deal honestly with yourself. But we don't do this well, do we Christians? We don't do this well. We do not love like we should. This passage stings whenever we consider it. Right? And I'll tell you this, if it doesn't hurt you to think about this passage, then you have so lowered the standard of love so far down that you can actually reach it. But the love of God is the standard here. This should hurt. But none of us love the way that we should. It can only be said of God that He is love. We fail. But let me lay out a few reasons that I think that we are so miserable and we fail so badly at loving this way and then present a remedy. And three things. First is this. Often, we are just selfish. (laughs) Period. We're selfish. We are not self-giving because we are selfish. 
We know that in order to love like God, in order to love the way in which He has loved us, it is going to take using our will, and it is going to cost us something every single time. And the fact of the matter is, we don't want to pay. It's going to cost our time. It's going to cost our talents. It is going to cost our money. It is going to cost our emotional energy. We are going to have to sacrifice our comfort and get involved with another. We are going to have to do away with our apathy. Apathy is a sin. We have to do away with that. And we are going to have to let people into our lives. And likewise, we are going to have to wade into the messiness of another sinner's life. And we just don't want to do it. We're selfish. But maybe that's not you. I got all my bases covered. Maybe that's not you. You do get involved. Maybe the person who says, no, I do get involved and I do give of myself to others. This one will get you. But maybe you're selective about who you will love. Discriminatory. I'm not just talking about race. You're just discriminatory in general about who you're going to love. Yeah, you'll get involved and you'll seek the good of others, but only the few. Only those who are like you, those who are of similar age or similar background or similar style or similar race or or similar family or interest or the same stage of life or the same economic status, whatever. Those people are the people that you're going to pour into. Or you only want to pour into the people that you think are cool or that are fun to be around. Those are the people you're going to go to. Those are the people you're going to give of yourself and love. And you avoid the ones that you consider odd or on the fringe. And to cut past all the junk, for all the reasons that we could give about that, we do this because we think we're better than other people. Seriously, like there's, like that's just what it comes down to. We do it because we think we're better than other people. That the ones that we avoid aren't worth our time because they're not really valuable to us. We don't think of ourselves that way. We think we're better than them. And you would never say those words. You'd never say those words. You probably never even think those words consciously. But that's really what it comes down to. Or maybe you're the third person. Maybe you do the right thing. And maybe you do show kindness and do good for all people around you with, with no discrimination. Just any, any Christian you're around, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do good for them. But you have no affection for the majority of the people. You're just doing a duty. I know that this is right. I know this is what I need to do. I know this is how I'm supposed to do an action and give of myself. And I don't even like this guy. And he was cold about it. But the love of God has, with the actions of love, a warm disposition and goodwill toward the object of love. And, and maybe you're sitting there like, like I was whenever I was studying this. Hold on, man. Nowhere in the Bible does it say I have to like the people that I'm serving. No, for real. And this has actually become a really popular thought in Christianity, is that like, since love is an action, and it's primarily an action, that like, how you feel doesn't matter. Right? And I've bought into that, and I've preached that here, and I want to publicly say I was wrong. It's in one of my favorite books. I'm stupid. Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. As a command. Love one another with brotherly affection. Right? That's the love of Friendship. And it's commanded by God. That's a warm love of friendship there. Another one, 1 Corinthians 13.3. 
Just to prove it's more than an action. It's a disposition as well. If I give away all I have, as in I give away all I have so that I can help people who are in need, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, if I make the ultimate sacrifice for another person and give my body for them, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's powerful. That tells us that you can do all the right things and still not really love somebody. Right? So, love does not lack action for certain, but there is more to it than just doing the right thing for someone. If we do the action without a warm heart, you're not really loving that person. This really raises the bar on how we're commanded to love. But I think that the remedy for our half-hearted love is to consider the great love of God. If you're the first person, you're just selfish. God gave up His Son. Christ literally gave all of Himself to save you. He poured Himself out unto death. How then could we any longer be selfish when we bear that in mind? Or maybe you're the person who has been selective. I would implore you to remember this. God has loved the entire church, all of the people of God without exception. God gave the Son, Scripture, continual forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, all of the things that we talked about. All of His love has been poured out on the whole body of Christ, not just a select few elites. Who then are we to discriminate when Almighty God does not? Or maybe you're the last person who lacks affection. I'll remind you, Zephaniah 3.17, God has a warm heart towards His people. He delights in and finds joy in His people. How in the world could we continue to be cold towards our brothers and sisters whom God has loved with warm affection? Essentially, those who have been loved much and understand that will love much and will reciprocate that kind of love. But this is a tall order. This is a mountain that we're commanded to climb. How are we to love with a warm heart in a self-giving way for the good of other people consistently? How are we supposed to do that? It's like climbing Mount Everest. How in the world am I supposed to do this? I'll tell you this, it, it won't be in you, and it won't be in your own willpower. All right, verse 7, the second half. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So again, I'm going to try to go quickly through. I know I've been up here for a while. The text doesn't say, whoever loves will be born of God and know God. That's not what the text says. It says, whoever loves has been born of God. I mean, this is something that has already happened. So if you have been born of God, and you know God experientially, you will love this way, is what John's saying. So hear me on this. If you have been born again, you will manifest this kind of love. If you have repented of your sins... Because I know a lot of people talk about being born again are kind of weird, right? But if you have repented of your sins and you've turned to Christ in faith and you are following him, then you have been born of God. You have been born again. So God has caused you to be made spiritually alive and has given you a new nature that seeks to please and obey God. A new nature that causes you to reflect more and more the character of God. This is because the Holy Spirit now dwells in you through faith in Christ. Okay, This is what the born-again person is. I'm just describing the new birth. Now, in light of that, let's check out what Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 
His, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. How in the world are we going to love the way that God loves people? Peter tells us that by God's power, God has given you, God has given us, the believer, His promised Holy Spirit so that you might take part in the nature of God. That's why John says, those who have been born of God love like this. And I don't mean that you have become little gods. right? I don't mean it like that. You've become partakers of the divine nature. That's some hippie stuff I don't want to get into tonight. But rather, we have taken on the nature of God in this regard. We've literally taken part in God's nature. Which means that we can actually love like this. So how are we going to love this way? God has already given you the ability to do it if you're a Christian. We've been made partakers of the nature of God that is love. And knowing that should energize us to strive to love one another rightly. It is possible for us to do this. God empowers you for the work. God never commands His people to do something that He will not, by grace, empower them to do if they will cooperate with His Holy Spirit. Period. So whenever you don't show this kind of love, it's not, I can't, it's, I refuse to cooperate with the grace of God within me. Alright, that's what that means. Because God has given you the ability to do this. You can do this. Alright, loving this way comes from God. So, since God is love, and we have experienced that love, He has caused us to be born again and given us the ability to reflect that love in light of all that. Beloved, let us love one another. This is your application. God has... God has made you a partaker of His nature that you might love this way. You have experienced the great love of God. He has loved you in Christ. He has showered you with love upon love upon love. You know Him. He's caused you to be born again. He's given you a new nature that can love this way. Now, beloved, let us love one another. Let us be patient with our spouses. Let us be understanding with our children and show respect and honor to our parents. Let us freely give to the poor among us. Let the spiritually mature disciple the less mature. Let us let people into our homes. Let us get emotionally invested in others. Let us let people into our lives and give of our time and talents and do kindness to one another. Let us reach out to those who are unlike us. Let us love with brotherly affection and delight in one another. Let us rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who weep depending on what season of life that they're in. Let us give of ourselves for the sake of others. In short, beloved, let us love one another. I can't make an exhaustive list of all the ways that you might love one another. John Calvin said, the true knowledge of God necessarily produces love in us. So if you have come to know God in Christ, let that knowledge have its effect and love. In closing, I'll level with you. 
This is one of the hardest commandments in the entire Bible. Love one another because God is love. So we have to love people like God loves us. This is insanely hard. This will be incredibly difficult because people are hard to love. Even Christians, right? Christians can be some of the hardest people to love because they know better. And how they act, they know better. They have the Word of God. They read it. They can be the hardest people to love. People are hard to love because we sin against each other. We will sin against each other. We will hurt one another. We will annoy each other. Right? People are annoying. It's not a sin to say it. It's okay. People will annoy you. But truly loving one another the way John tells us to is going to push us to our limits. Period. But when you're thinking it's not worth it, and they're too annoying, and they have hurt me for the last time, and they are too frustrating, and they're just not worth my time, they're just not worth my effort, remember this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His great love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let that drive you. Let the love of God and Christ Jesus crucified drive you and push you to keep loving. Beloved, let us love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for the great love with which you have loved us. Thank you for all the graces that you give ruined sinners who do not deserve it. God, please continue to work your love in us. Let us see your love towards us daily primarily in Christ crucified, but also in the other graces, the daily love that you show us in so many ways, the the myriad ways that you love us. Let us see that and be reminded of who you are and what you've done. God, let that be fuel for us, that we would then show that kind of compassion, that kind of generosity, that kind of grace, that kind of self-giving love that you've showed us to others. Let us show that. Please don't stop working in us. Lord, we love you, but we do not love you enough. And it's because of our lack of love for you and our lack of gratitude for what you've done for us that we don't love one another. So God, please increase our, our love for you and thereby increase our love for one another. Please grant that to us. We pray this on the merits of your son. We thank you above all things for Christ crucified for us. Amen.